Brothers and sisters, um, it's my privilege to um, preach from God's Word this morning. Just want to know if you can hear me at the back. Is it? Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we'll be reading from Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Before I read, um, just had to mention, I have the privilege of being a member of seven Presbyterian churches in Australia, two in New South Wales, one in Victoria right now, and three, or probably four if you count Seoul Church twice, um, member for at least a year in these churches. And God has been so good because he spared me from the horrors of, you know, the stories you hear at Bible College of corrupt sessions, um, wayward ministers, and fighting groups within churches. I'm sure we have our own challenges here, but God has been so good. Um, even when I first arrived in Olverston, an elder took me aside and asked me, that, would I like to pray? Would I like to read the Bible with him? And God has grown me from that, and I've never imagined myself becoming a minister of his word. And so God has been so good, and whatever picture you have of the Presbyterian Church, the last 200 years, it's not as rosy as we might think. Where we are now is all because of God's grace. And so we can praise him for that. And so let me read this passage and... I'll pray, and then we'll go through it. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask of you, indeed, by your Spirit, equip us to hear your words clearly and apply it to our own context, situation, and lives. Pray for the growth of the church here in Tasmania and beyond, that the gospel may 
reach out to the nations and that we will be part of that work. By your grace, in the power of the Spirit, and under your authority. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was 10 years ago when I went to Bible college um, as a candidate of the Derwent Presbytery. A few months before that, I visited my first pastor. My first pastor um, was and still is a Pentecostal church pastor. It's the same church I uh, grew up in. Anyway, I told him of my calling to ministry. He was quite proud. But after um, a few minutes of conversation, he asked, what college are you going to? I said, it's the Presbyterian Theological Center in Sydney. That was before it became Christ College. My pastor um, changed his mood a bit at that point. He said, Presbyterian, Presbyterian. What about the Holy Spirit, RJ? What about the Holy Spirit? My pastor was right to, con to voice his concern, but I believe um, the Reformed Church and the Bible's interpretation of the work of the Spirit, we have a very strong um, theology in the work of God in His Spirit. The Spirit makes us alive in faith in the Lord Jesus, and matures us in Christ-likeness, evidenced by love. Perhaps that's too academic or too dry or not showy enough, but that's what we need to see in the Bible. And this is our prayer for the Presbyterian Church of Tasmania as she goes beyond 200 years of existence. We don't need to paint a rosy picture of the Presbyterian Church. It can't be done but we can celebrate the work of God bringing us up to this point with many having faith in the Lord Jesus and showing love to God's people and a heart that wants to reach out to the lost. And that's a great way to celebrate this day. And we can ask, like Paul, to give us the Holy Spirit so that he quickens our hearts to life that he will keep us growing in the knowledge of God. And that's the key to this passage, the knowledge of God. Our prayer is that we as a church together will know God better by his spirit. Before we look at what things we ought to pray for, there are two observations we can make from this prayer. The first one is the shape of this prayer. Let's read verse 15 together. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. For this reason, points back to that majestic 202-word single sentence in Greek, outburst of praise and thanksgiving for all that the triune God, who He is and what He has done. And this prayer follows that up with another majestic 169 words single sentence in the greek which gives us a picture of what the father the son and the holy spirit continue to do the church in ephesus already gave evidence of faith in jesus and love for god's people still paul prays so must we 
It's curious in our Tasmanian code, it is the, we are the only state that subscribe to a standard, that, that old document called the form of Presbyterian church government. According to the form, what is the pastor's job? What's first on the list? Here's what it says. First, it belongs to his office to pray for and with his flock as the mouth of, <clears throat> mouth of the people unto God. Of course, later on, prayer and preaching will be equated together. But we're also interested in what the form says about what should the pastor pray for. What should the pastor pray for? It says this, the office of the elder, that is the pastor, is to pray for the sick, even in private, to which a blessing is specially promised. Much more, therefore, ought he to perform this in the public execution of his office as a part thereof. Ephesians go, goes big picture, doesn't it? Paul gives us ultimates. Yes, praying for the sick is necessary. Praying for strength in our marriages, much needed. Praying for comfort and peace in the lives of our suffering people, a must. Paul gives us something more primary. Verse 17. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So that you may know him better. Knowing God's word, his will, his ways will help us to understand all the other things that we go through in life. Growth in the knowledge of God, that's what Paul prays for. And that's what we can pray for and should pray for. Knowing God here is not just head knowledge. We know that. It's, it is an ever-increasing trust and reliance on His revealed will. Knowing God is a deepening of that intimate relationship with our Father. Knowing God is the heightening of our religious affections, if we listen to Jonathan Edwards. Yes, affections. I did my um, introduction to chaplaincy two years ago under Paul Houston. We all know him. And we did a case study of one of the, um, I guess, hard cases of um, mental illness and gave us steps on how to help. And then after the case study, he asked me, or the group, how did you feel about this story, RJ? And I started analyzing it in terms of, I like the way he started with this and that and that and that. And then Paul stopped me and said, no, I ask you, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it? And he gave me hundreds of words to, to use. Um, and it, it exposed my own ideas of, about how I look at things and, and not rely first on the listening part and the, the empathy with a suffering um, person. So if our knowledge of God is only up here and not down here, then our knowledge, knowledge of God is a mile wide, but only an inch deep. And this is not a one-off prayer, isn't it? Is it? This is the consistent shape of his prayer, he says. I keep asking. And this can be the shape of our prayer. 
that every person in our churches, from the youngest to the oldest, may know God better. This prayer is for the whole church and not just individuals, that we as a church together will know God better. There's a relationship between individual prayer and corporate prayer. John Calvin believed the public ministry of prayer shapes our private prayer life. Um, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, supplements this with this, quote, daily private prayer should be more interwoven with the corporate prayer of the church, unquote. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, in the text, it's possible this is a reference to the human spirit, but it is impossible to know God without His Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who makes us alive and who matures us in Christ-likeness. And that leads us to our second observation, the power behind the prayer. Verse 17 again, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. The Holy Spirit is front and center of this work. Our prayers have no inherent power. We all know that. And God is the power behind every prayer. I won't dwell too long on this one except to say chapter 114 of Ephesians guaranteed Christians. Christians already have the Holy Spirit, but there's still room for growth. There's no other way this can happen, this growing, this um, deepening intimate relationship with God, but only in the Spirit. Now, how does he do it? Now, how does he do it? Look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Stop there. That phrase, the eyes of your heart. In 1999, the giant fashion brand Comme des Garçons, pardon my French, used, it, um, used a t-shirt logo where a heart a, uh, has, has this two doe-eyed heart. Uh, sorry, a doe-eyed heart. So picture a t-shirt, a white t-shirt, and a red simple heart with eyes on it. It was never explained what they meant by it. No one really knew. Was it a loving eye? Was it an all-knowing heart? Was it about passion? Was it about a vision for a kinder society? And now, it might surprise us, the phrase, eyes of the heart, was first coined by the apostle himself. He should have copyrighted it and get royalties from that fashion brand. And contrary to that French label, Paul was clear at what happens at the heart level when the Spirit works. The heart being the seat of our being, it determines our loyalties, our desires, our decisions. That heart needs cataract surgery. God's light must come in. Then we see. And we don't just see words on a page or hear sounds uttered in preaching or reading. No, we, we see and hear what's really there, what God has intended to be understood. And that's 
the work of the Holy Spirit, the ability to see, the fight, the fight for faith, the growth of the church is tied up with God's Spirit, opening our eyes to see His glory. That's the power behind every prayer. Paul could have asked for many things. Yes, the form is right um, to, to mention all those things to pray for, and they're very biblical. But here Paul gives us the primary request so that we can know God better. And verse 18 again, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In the original, it's a beautiful triad. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, the incomparable might of his power. So you hear that, um, the source repeating, who, did it, who does this come from? Who's the um, subject or is that the object here? It's his calling, it's his inheritance, it's his mighty power. It's all God's. We want more of him. And so, if we are to know God better, we need to know those three things. Number one, the hope of his calling. It's good to ask this question for us Christians once in a while. Um, why are you a Christian? Or why am I a Christian? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, perhaps you can ask, what makes a Christian a Christian? In the phrase, hope of his calling, the primary verb is call, which then leads to hope. The caller is God, and the Christian is the person who said yes to God's call. God calls out in the gospel of Jesus, repent and believe. And when we say yes, then by grace alone, you realize faith has been given you. That's what makes a Christian a Christian. We answered God's call. As a Christian, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. So calling here, um, among many things, it means a bright future awaits us as the church. It's this idea of an eternal life with the God of the universe, the Father of glory. That's why we have hope even in this life. It's not a wishy-washy, worldly hope, but a bold confidence. God has already done everything so that this will happen. Yet we know people put their hope on so many other things. There's the idol of self and, and perhaps escapism. Netflix, money, sex, health, you name it. There's good in all of them, and yet we can do them only because we are self-centered and short-sighted. In the context of Ephesus, we all know the city was a proud, um, proud of their fertility goddess, Diana or Artemis. Their economic wealth is made up, among other things, um, in producing those idols, idol figures, 
and uh, tourism boosted by pagan worship. Without God, their heart was captivated by idolatry. And our hearts keep producing more idols. As we know, the heart is an idol factory. And we can easily numb ourselves with the things of this world. Christians have more than this world can offer. God has called us to himself in Jesus Christ. And he wants to spend eternity with us. And that leads us to a great hope, the hope of our calling. Number two, if we are to know God better, we need to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. If you just read up um, in verse 13 in, in chapter 1, it says, When you believed, you were marked with him, in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee, sorry, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. See the word there, it says our inheritance. It's a promise that our redemption will be completed. But here in verse 19, it says his inheritance, his inheritance. It's quite different, isn't it? We are God's inheritance. We are His treasure. He has put so much value upon us. Deuteronomy 9.29 says, But they are your people, this is Moses praying, your inheritance that you brought out by your great power. So this is a profound statement from Paul. God treats us as His treasure. We need to have our eyes open to God's goodness and kindness and love. When we think of who we are and sins we have done or are capable of, isn't it a wonder that God would put such emphasis on valuing us and wanting to spend eternity with us? We all know that the daily grind, whether in ministry or not, can take our focus off this truth. We are God's inheritance. You are sons your daughters, of your heavenly Father. It's a lot to reflect on this statement and this truth. And I commend it to you to think about that again. You are His children. We are His children. He cares for us. He loves us. He values us. Sin cannot separate us from His love because he has dealt with sin once for all in the Lord Jesus. You are his inheritance. Number three, if we are to know God better, we need to know the incomparable greatness of his power. Or you can translate it mega power. This is God's mega power. And, and so this is a prayer that Paul wants us to pray. It's tell your heart, see See the mighty power of God. See it in your life. What is this power? It says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. What makes us physically alive? What makes that heart of ours, that pump that circulates blood all over our bodies? Or the different parts of our body that takes care of all the chemicals, um, good and bad, that we bring in and dispose of the not-so-good ones. God 
raised Christ from the dead. There are 100 billion bodies buried in the earth all throughout history, 100 billion. BBC warns us the world is running out of burial space. Meanwhile, in Phoenix, Arizona, a facility cryogenically frees bodies and brains, maintaining it at 200 degrees below zero. And there's a new facility in Holbrook, New South Wales, a cryonic facility, they call it, where even now in these facilities, there are hundreds of people, 70K a pop, where you can choose this option. The purpose is that hope of reanimating these people in the future when technology catches up. It's big business, isn't it? To have the power to raise people from the dead. And yet, what an affront to our God because he already displayed his power by raising Jesus from the dead. And a time will come, the Bible says, that all these dead bodies, including ours, unless Jesus comes first, all these bodies will be resurrected in the last day and will face the judgment and face the God who made us, our creator, our sustainer, the giver of all life. And Paul wants to make it clear, this power is available to us now. Verses 19 to 20 says it's the same power that the same power that Jesus that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that Jesus holds as he ascended to heaven, where he is now ruling as king. And Paul says, we have to know this power. To do what? And that's our question. Verse 22 says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the reason for this prayer, to know this power. It seems to be a digression from Paul. He, he, he just segued to... Um, put so much emphasis on that power of God, but I believe this is where he, wants, he wanted to, to end up. That we know the body of Christ, the church, has been made for that purpose, to fill everything in every way as he leads it. In other words, our purpose is to know Christ and, and make him known, to know Christ and make him known. We, the church, fills everything in every way, as Christ leads. We, the church, go to every place, um, in schools, in businesses, in sports, in hospitals, in, art, in the arts, in universities, in the media, TV, radio, internet, social media, print. In all these places, we declare Jesus Christ as Lord. And so, the power that we can grasp now is the power to declare with our words and actions that Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. And we come back to what it's all about. We begin with prayer. As the Spirit works, we become the powerful praying and preaching and loving church 
we are meant to be. So praise God, who by His grace brought us here today. Praise God that we can celebrate His work in Tasmania for the last 200 years. No one else deserves the honor, the praise, the glory, except God alone. Our history as a Presbyterian church may be patchy, but we are sure, we heard it even this morning, we are sure millions of prayers have been lifted up to God in this history. Those prayers have had no inherent power. But the power behind every prayer is the God who chose to get us to this point. Let's celebrate the God who did that and pray to God that as a church together, we will know Him better. Let us pray. This is your world. This is your grace to us, Lord, that in this fleeting life, we can participate in the work that you are doing. Indeed, help us to be bold in declaring your wonders, in proclaiming the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again, coming again in glory. May it be our heart's desire that we will know him better as a church together and that we will know as a church together how we can spread his word to many, not just here in Tasmania, but beyond. Help us to know our role, our responsibility, Lord, in ensuring your church grows in maturity as we pray and depend on the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the church you've created here. Sustain it, Father. May it do all that you command and love doing it. In Jesus' name, amen.